Welcome to another episode of K-12 On Learning. I'm Heidi Higgins. Dr. Martin Luther King's powerful message of equality and human potential will always be relevant and worthy of discussion. So while I was considering a way to address the upcoming holiday in his honor, I wanted to find a source of hope. I found Kevin Hoffman. Kevin has a fascinating story. He is the author of Growing Up Black in White. A quote from his book made me do a lot of thinking. If we see the world from different angles, whose view is correct? Diversity helps eliminate our blind spots. By the time he turned two years old, Kevin Hoffman had survived an abortion, had been given away by his mother, adopted by a family of another race, and woke up to a burning cross in his front yard. Kevin was born in Detroit in August 1967, two weeks after the riots that changed that city forever. It was out of these amazing circumstances that his life and purpose began. It's out of these experiences that he shares his story with us today, a story of struggle, pain, and passion, but most of all, a story of hope. It's out of his own life experience that he works tirelessly to unite the races and share equal parts of his DNA. We welcome you to the podcast, Kevin. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Can you share a little bit about your story with us? Sure. It's interesting that we're talking, you know, in honor of Martin Luther King, because I was born one year, 1967, a year before he was killed. I am the result of an affair between a white woman and black man. They worked together at the Chevy stamping plant in Livonia, Michigan, just outside Detroit. When my mother found out she went to her white husband, shared with him the news, he understood she was pregnant by a black man. So his solution was, well, then we can't keep the child. The child has to be put up for adoption. And so I was immediately put up for adoption. And at three months old, I was adopted by a white minister, his wife. And I have two brothers and a sister in that family. And they're biological to my mom and dad, to my adoptive parents. We lived, like I said, in the suburb of Detroit, Dearborn. Right about the time that Martin Luther King was killed, the neighbors in that community celebrated my presence by burning a cross in our front yard. We stayed in that community for an additional three years. And at that time, my mother was refused service at the local hair salon because I was with her. I was referred to, we went, this was back when they used to have photo studios in like Kmart and uh, the five and dime stores. And so we went there to get a family photo taken. And the young white photographer asked my mother if the welfare baby could be, is going to be in the picture referring to me. So after living in that kind of environment for three years, my parents decided you know, this community is going to change us before we change it. And my father chose to pastor a church in Detroit where the parsonage or the home that we all lived in was in a black neighborhood. So from age three to 18, I was always around kids that looked like me. And that was life changing. I got to, I can tell you at three years old, there was this feeling of home just being around kids that looked like me. And that was life changing. And so that's what the book is about, is kind of our struggles and our successes, trying to navigate this very colorful life in a world that puts a lot of weight on color. Your perspective is interesting, Kevin, because you have seen both sides from the inside. 
You know, when I heard your story, I was humbled by the fact that you saw people treat you and your family harshly. What changes to that have you witnessed? Did things get better in your teen years? Yeah, so it's interesting. It's kind of ebbed and flowed. So, you know, I grew up late 60s, 70s, and 80s. And that was about the time when political correctness was around. And so, you know, in the 70s, people would just say whatever they felt like saying. I just remember people saying horrible things to me. And then that kind of calmed down in the 80s where people, they just set them behind closed doors. And now we're kind of at the other end of that where people feel very emboldened to say whatever they they feel. And so that's caused a lot of conflict, especially over the last, you know, five, six years. It certainly has. You have a compelling story here. Where did you find your confidence and inspiration to record your story and write a book? So there's two stories as to why I wrote the book. The first story was growing up in the 70s in Detroit. Detroit was very polarized by race and became, because of the riots in 67, it's referred to as white flight. So a lot of the white people in Detroit moved out to the suburbs. And so Detroit became very, a very Black city very quickly. I went to a very small private Lutheran school in the neighborhood, probably had about three or 400 students in it, predominantly Black, like 95% Black, but the teaching staff was all white. This was back in the days when corporal punishment was accepted, especially in Christian schools. And so we had a principal who in today's terms, would be considered an abusive person. He, on a regular occasion, hit students. And I was terrified of that. I, I was this small kid just trying to fit in in this school that seemed huge to me. And so that was kind of the environment that I grew up in as far as school. And we had what I call our safe harbor, which was my seventh grade teacher and English teacher, Mrs. Scharfenberg beautiful white woman. And I remember the teacher's lounge was in the back of her room. And so usually what would happen was one of the kids would be terrorized by the principal and we would come running to her and we'd have to get to her through the teacher's lounge. And this was back when teachers could smoke in the school. And so the teacher's lounge, I remember knocking on the teacher's lounge door and it was this plexiglass and you'd knock on that and it would rattle when they had a curtain over the door so you couldn't see in. But as soon as they opened the door, you would just get hit with this puff of cigarette smoke and the smell of coffee. (laughs) (laughs) And and you you were just praying that Mrs. Scharfenberg was going to answer the door. And usually she did. She was just that soft place to land where we would go and we would cry on her shoulder and she would just sit there and listen to us. And she became my English teacher She did the opposite of what that principal did. So that principal had convinced me that I was not good at math, which wasn't true, which is such a shame because that wasn't true. So I did horribly in math and didn't figure that out until I was in my 40s that I took every level of math that you could through high school. So I couldn't have been that bad at math. But Mrs. Scharfenberg did the opposite of me when, when it came to writing. She convinced me that I could write and I had this gift. And so that's why I wanted to write. One of the beautiful things that Mrs. Scharfenberg did, and when I go out to schools and talk to schools, I implore them to do the same, was she understood what this school was. This was the small school, predominantly Black, in a time where these kids were trying to figure out who we are, how we fit into this big world. And she understood. She did an amazing thing, which I remember in seventh grade, she brought in mythology. And she taught us senior high school level mythology. And it was her way of saying, 
no matter what everyone says about you outside, I know you can do this. And so I'm going to instill that in you. That was a lot for us because I got through that. And then it just showed me that, yeah, they weren't right. That I was so much better than, than I thought I was or that what people were telling me. And so it's a favorite story I like to tell because Mrs. Scharfenberg, my favorite teacher, just so impactful for me in life. She convinced me I could write. And that was one of the biggest reasons why I wrote the book was as I get older, legacy becomes more and more important. And so I try to honor as many people's legacies as I can. So to honor her legacy, to be able to write and just, you know, kind of brag about this wonderful English teacher I had. Oh, Kevin, I applaud that teacher, a listening, caring cheerleader, so to speak, for you. Yeah, and I, I wish we had more teachers like that. Sounds like she challenged you enough to instill courage and confidence in your abilities and provided hope. I love the tenderness with which you said she was a soft place to land. She did it because she knew she could. And all the kids that I went to grade school with, I'm still close to today. And we all just sing praises of her because she meant so much to us. So that was one reason why I wrote the book. The other one was, it was such an unusual story. I thought it would be so unique to put out into the world. And while I was writing the book, the book is actually written to white adoptive mothers who have adopted children of color. And then halfway through the book, not even halfway through, as I was putting the book together, I also understood that this could be a way to tell an amazing story and to show others a different experience when it comes to race. A large purpose behind the book was to talk about race in a way that white people wouldn't put the book down, but they would continue to read it. The book is really just me flashing back to when I was young and things that happened and then coming to today and saying, "Okay, today as a black man, this is how I interpret what was going on there. And so I think it's important for other people to see. And I say this all the time. We need to do a better job of just putting more voices in the room. And so that was my attempt at just putting my voice in the room to share my experience as a black person in this country. Thank you for that, Kevin. Many listening today are parents with students learning from home. Teachers still play this vital role, but parents also enjoy a greater opportunity for influence than in any other situation. And that's why this conversation is so important. Parents share their view of the world, and they also offer themselves as examples of how to treat others and hopefully provide more of that tender spot. How do we create that welcoming comfort zone in our own homes? Well, I think you have to honor who's in your home. <laughs> and so that means, again, different voices is huge. There's, a, there's this great African proverb that says, until the lion learns how to write, the story will always glorify the hunter. And that is, a, that is great. That's so true, right? And right. so, and I say that about my book, like, who do you think the hero is in my book? It's me, because I wrote it. <laughs> and that's kind of how we've handled history in this country. <laughs> a select portion of our society got to write history. So, of course, they're the heroes. We need to do a better job of putting women's voices in the room. It's interesting. When I go into schools today and I talk, they kind of laugh at us adults who have believed the simple story that the pilgrims came here and over dinner got this amazing, vast land. But any other time land is taken, it's not done so, so calmly. It's done violently. 
yes, we can tell the story of the pilgrims, but we should also tell the story from the indigenous person's point of view, from the woman's point of view that was a part of the pilgrim. I think that's important. And I, that's what I try to share with people that I talk to is tell the same story just from different point of views and then let the kids decide. That's the big debate today is this critical race theory. I don't get into that. I just ask that we tell history honestly from as many points of views as we can. Something you mentioned in your book is that it's important for parents to teach their children to build allies. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, so there was an experience I had. I was getting on an elevator and the elevator door is open and my wife and I are standing there and there's a little young white boy standing in the middle of the doorway. And he looked at me and the defiance in his eyes, he refused to move. And I thought a lot about that interaction. And I thought, man, what messages have been sent to this child by the age of seven or eight that in his head, he feels he doesn't have to move for someone that looks like me. That was a couple of years ago. And that has given me the idea, which will be the next book, which is teaching white parents how to raise allies. We have to do a better job. We spend a lot of time in the black community of teaching our children what to do in certain environments, what to do when you're pulled over by the police, what to do when you're in a store, what to do when you're in school. I think we need to do a better job in this country of educating young white children as to how they can be allies. It's interesting, coming through school, we have a lot of leaders. There are natural leaders. When I go into schools, I can notice it right away. Unfortunately, the majority of those leaders are the bullies, they're the athletes, And so what I'm just asking is that we kind of look at this differently and say, okay, we need compassionate leaders. We need the leaders that are going to stand up for the kid who identifies as a different gender than what you see. We need the leaders who are going to stick up for the only black child in the classroom. That's how you create allies is you, one, let that group understand that this world is shared. And not everything in this world is yours. And that's kind of the impression I got from that little white kid standing in the middle of that elevator. By age eight, he had been told that the world is yours. Go get it. And when we teach kids that, we need to also teach them, but you also need to make room for the person standing beside you. And so I, I, we need to do a way better job of that. Allyship also means we raise allies to understand that there may be times when you're a soldier in the army and not the commander, (laughs) which is important because oftentimes those children have been taught your voice matters, your voice matters, your voice matters. So when they come into a different environment, they expect to be the voice. And you have to understand and be humble enough to say, I'm only a soldier in this army. You reminded me of a quote by Dr. King, and it says, there's some good in the worst of us and some evil in the best of us. And when we discover this, we're less prone to hate our enemies. We We often don't think about others because we are all we know. And so opening up those doors and getting to know building those allies. I think that that's a great conversation to have in our homes. What are some things that we can do to share that common ground and let them experience what it's like? It's just that. It's experience. Probably (laughs) slant against racism for me is that oftentimes my experience is dismissed. 
So I can say, man, I really didn't like what that person said. I felt like there was another meaning to what they said. And then often I'm confronted with, no, you got that wrong. No, you're being too insensitive. Why are you always pulling the race card? Which doesn't help me. <laughs> it only hurts me further because I'm just being totally dismissed. And so I will often give the example. I remember in high school, I was in a physics class and we were learning about radio waves. And so you always get that question, you know, if a tree falls in the forest when no one's around, is there sound? And so me and my wife always debate about that. And that really gave me the idea about how we see racism and race and racism different in this country. As a person of color, I have been tuned in to want to a station on the dial. If I'm not tuned into that station, I can't hear it, but that sound is still there. And so as a person of color growing up in this country, you become very aware of what racism is and is, and I can spot it like that because I've had 54 years of experience to do that. And so when I consider myself an expert in this, when I say that and then someone says, no, 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 you're wrong, that's very dismissive. We need to teach our children that everyone does not experience the world as you do. And because they experience it differently doesn't make them wrong, it just makes it different. And we need to do a way better job of that. And we need to do a better job of tuning in down the aisle to see what other people are listening to. Kevin, can you share with us some ideas of how to develop and harbor a safe place, whether it be at home, even in our work, in our schools, what can we do to create that space? It, it's just that, that everyone has space. One of the things I teach when I go into schools is, it's, it's a keynote address I do, it's called, give me three feet. And it's a basketball term that we used to use when we were playing backyard basketball in Detroit. The, the rule is, because we had such cramped space when we were playing basketball in the backyard, you had to give whoever was passing the ball in, you had to give them their three feet. And I remember the first time I learned this rule was with a good friend of mine, Max Mixon. He was taking the ball out and he yelled three feet. And I was guarding him. So I was right on him as he's trying to get the ball in. And I'm pinning him really between the sidewalk, me and the fence. And so he has no room to move. And he yells, give me three feet. And I turn to my best friend, Mike, and I'm like, what's he talking about? And Mike's like, I don't know. So Max yells it again. And I, again, turn to Mike and I'm like, what's he talking about? And the third time, after, after the third time Max yelled it, he wound up with the basketball and threw it at my chest. And from that point on, I understood very clearly what give me three feet was. Exactly. And I think we, I see that a lot in society where, especially people of color, we are asking for our space. Give me three feet. Give me three feet. Give me three feet. And so you see this a lot in schools where the third time you are yelling it, and then that student's the one that gets in trouble because no one saw what happened in the past. So my point is that we all have this three feet around us that we have every right to fill up. My three feet doesn't have to impact your three feet. And, and this is important for, and adults do this too. I see this all the time at work where don't just assume that everyone thinks like you. I had this happen a lot at work where people would come and they would share their political views 
assuming that I thought like they did. Because in their head, this is the right way to think. Everyone thinks like me, and that's just not true. And so Gimme Three Feet just says, I have every right to vote for who I want to, to love who I want to, to worship who I want to within my own three feet. And that never will impact your three feet. Your three feet are not going to be threatened. And you can't even come into my three feet unless you're invited. And you can't be invited until we're in relationship. And that's why social media is such a hot mess because we are having these debates with people that we're not in relationship with, we will never be in relationship with, we will never see. So those people can say things without consequence. So don't get into that. It's not worth it. You have a right to. You're three feet, you get to own all of it, and others around you have their right to their three feet, and they've got to respect your three feet. <laughs> respect and three feet. I think I've got a new theme. <laughs> Thank you, Kevin. You, you talk about the importance of understanding your purpose. How did you discover your purpose? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that, because I think we all have purpose, and that doesn't get stressed enough. So certain things happen in our lives for, for a reason. One powerful story that I learned when I met my a biological family when I was in my 40s, and I met an aunt who shared with me that when my mother found out she was pregnant, she went to my aunt to borrow money to have an abortion. My aunt said I was sitting at my mobile home dining room table and over warm coffee, your mother asked me for this money. My aunt didn't know the particulars <laughs> behind how her sister got pregnant. And so eventually my mother had to share with her that she'd gotten pregnant out of wedlock with a man that she had an affair with at work, a black man, which was very shameful back in the 60s. When she shared that piece of information with her, uh, my Aunt Nancy got up from that mobile home table, disappeared into the back of the mobile home and came back out, grabbed my mother's hand and put the money in my mother's hand for my abortion. And my mother had every plan to go from Livonia, Michigan to Flint, Michigan, which is about an hour away and, and terminate my life. I don't know why, because I unfortunately never got to meet my mother, but somewhere along that 60 mile you know, cold highway, my mother changed her mind and understood that she was gonna have to go home and tell her husband the truth risking her own safety because back in the late 60s husbands had a whole lot more leeway with their wives so if he had gotten violent with my mother I don't know if the police would have even been called she chose to tell him the truth and really I'm sure in fear of her own safety so I don't take that lightly you know I will often say it's glad to meet you it carries a different weight with me because I understand I was less than an hour away from not being able to meet you at all. And so from that becomes my purpose, which is how do I unite these races that I'm made up of? How do I help people figure this thing out that, you know, I've been here for 50 plus years and we're still struggling with this. And so yeah, that's my purpose. My purpose is, like I said, to honor my mother's legacy. Such a personal story to share. Thank you, Kevin. Do you have some final words for our listeners today? Here's a quote from Martin Luther King that I really like, which says, the time is always right to do the right thing. 
oftentimes we concentrate on the reverend that Dr. Martin Luther King was, that he preached strictly, he was a preacher. So he preached from the Bible and he talked a lot about forgiveness, which was great. That puts the responsibility on the victim. And so it's great. I love when it says, it's always the right time to do the right thing. Just do the right thing. Yeah. When you're in class and some kid, some student is being made fun of because they're different, just stand up and say something. Unfortunately, the siren call that we hear is, no, 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 I want to do what makes me feel good in the moment. But the bigger thing is, and especially it's important for students to understand that as you're younger, what gets celebrated is everyone being similar. So there's all this pressure for everyone to be alike, to assimilate to our culture. And as a person of color, you get that a lot. You know, you can come in, into our environment as long as you play it by our rules. And so it's interesting. I get asked to go into organizations and schools and help them with diversity and inclusion. And a lot of times what they're saying is just fix our problem, but, but don't, don't erase our culture. And what I have to tell them is your culture has to change. Your culture has to be broader to, to include more people in it. Yeah, those environments at school especially, you're kind of rewarded for being like everybody else. And I wish more students would understand that it's your uniqueness that will bring you success. My story is very, very unique and I've gained success from it. The way I tell stories is unique. I gained success from that. It's not because I can tell it the same as Mrs. Scharfenberg or people that I went to school with. So understand students, hone in on what you do unlike anybody else, because that's where your success will come, not from being like everybody else. Martin Luther King was such a force because he was so unique. And a lot of that uniqueness came from his experience, his life experiences. He was a preacher. He was the son of a preacher. He was preaching straight from the Bible. And, and he was preaching about an ugly subject in a very calm way, which spoke to a lot of people. Thank you, Kevin Hoffman, for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to K-12 on Learning. We appreciate your feedback. I encourage you to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and please leave us a positive review. We also have a voice line where you can leave us a comment at speakpipe.com forward slash K12 on learning podcast. To learn more about Stride or K12, go to stridelearning.com or k12.com. And keep in mind that the conversations here are strictly the opinions of the speakers and do not represent Stride. K-12, or any affiliates.